All right, I want to welcome everyone to Grace Community Church. Uh, just really quick, as we begin, if you're in the back, if you can hear me, can you give me a thumbs up? Thumbs up in the back. All right, we are continuing today in our study of the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. I want you to join me, and we're going to ask God... We do this every week. We're going to ask the Lord to bless the preaching of His Word. Let's ask the Lord to do that now. Father, we come to You today, and we want to take our stand in the finished work of Christ. And so, Lord, we come to You, casting aside all of our own righteousness, Lord. We come in the name of Jesus today. And we petition You, Lord, as our Father in heaven, you are king of all, and you rule over all that you have made, and you've set your king on your holy hill, your Christ, the Lord Jesus, and he's king over all, and he's king forever, and Lord, we ask that you would bring your kingdom, and that you would come, Lord, as king, even today, God, that you would manifest King Jesus, that you would manifest your kingly rule in our midst. That you would make things submit to you in these moments where we hear your word. God, we ask that you would make your word effective and that you would rule over your church through the proclamation of your truth. God, fill this time up with the power of the Holy Spirit. We are dependent on You. And we trust in You, God. God, I pray today and I ask You to use Your Word, Your your Gospel of Your glorious grace, and that You would be pleased today to use it to break the back of our discouragement, Lord. Drive it into the dust, God. Make it bow down to You and obey Your Gospel, Lord. God, I pray that You would lift burdens from hearts all across this room. God, I pray that You would set captives free as Your Word is proclaimed. Your powerful Gospel that brings men from death to life. God, draw near today, we pray. Lord, we labor in vain unless You build this house. And so we give this time to You, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. One of the most beautiful words that you can use to describe Christianity is the word grace. The word grace. And this is the central theme in our passage today, and I want you to jump and glance ahead at Acts 15, verse 11. Start to finish, this is what we're going to talk about today. The central feature of this passage is the grace of of God, I want you to read that with me really quickly, Acts 15, 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. The grace of God. Salvation through the grace of God. Salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. One of the most beautiful glimpses of Christianity and the Christian gospel. 
And so I want to remind us today just a few things about the grace of God. And when we mention the grace of God, what are we talking about? This can be lost in you know, Christian talk and Christian lingo. But the grace of God means that God bestows His favor. That's what the grace of God is. The bestowal of the favor of God. Now when we begin to talk about uh, the bestowal of favor, and specifically the bestowal of the favor of Almighty God, it's inappropriate to ever talk about this as anything less than amazing. The grace of God is amazing. And this is what's been sung by the church for hundreds of years, amazing grace. And even as we approach Ephesians chapter 1, we're told that this, not only is it amazing, this is glorious grace. The grace of God that is given to us in Jesus Christ is glorious. Absolutely glorious. And I want to give us just a few perspectives that will help us to, to pull back the veil and see the glory of the grace of God that has been freely given to us in Jesus Christ. So I want you to think about this with me for a moment. One of the things that makes the grace of God so amazing is that the people that receive the grace of God are so undeserving. Okay, We're going to spend some time talking about that for just a moment, that those who receive God's favor, the grace of God that is given to us in Christ, is not given to those who deserve God's favor, in, in fact, it's the exact opposite. We are undeserving. And the Bible tells us that if God were to give us what we deserve, the wages of our sin, if He was to pay us the wages that we have earned, the Bible says that God would pay us death. That the wages of our sin is death. That we deserve wrath. And so many times, you may have heard, the grace of God is God's favor to the undeserving but really we must go further than that, that the grace of God is His favor to the hell-deserving. Those who deserve His wrath. Those who deserve to be punished through endless ages. Those who have gotten in the face of holy, holy God and provoked Him to wrath through Christ can receive God's favor instead of God's wrath. This is amazing. This is an amazing gift of God. And the ones who deserve His wrath can receive the favor of God in Christ. And as the church has sung about this gospel truth, things like this come out of our mouths. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, and not in part, but the whole. And the song, the celebration is, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. The grace of God. Those who deserve to be punished have received forgiveness of sin. Another thing that makes the grace of God amazing is the spiritual blessings that the grace of God brings to us. And these things cannot be compared with any other types of riches. The riches of grace, the riches of the gospel, the riches of Jesus. And the Bible tells us that the moment that we believe, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places becomes ours. That we are made rich through the grace of God. The undeserving ones given all the riches 
of the kingdom of God. All of our sins laid upon Christ. All of His righteousness given to us. The grace of God not only brings us forgiveness of sins, the grace of God also makes us children of God. Think about how, how glorious this is. That there are angels right now who are hiding their faces from holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And you call that same God Father in heaven through the gospel. Amazing grace, glorious grace from God. And not only are we children of God, through grace we are made joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And what that means, all the riches of the kingdom that belong to Jesus, Jesus shares them with us. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours in Christ. Joint heirs. Doesn't get any better than this. The, 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 the blessings of the grace of God, the amazing grace of God. Absolutely astounding. And then we come to the most central feature. What makes grace absolutely earth shaking, astounding, and amazing is the cost of grace. We can't even begin to fit this in our minds. That the Bible tells us that all these gifts that we've been talking about, that favor of God and all those spiritual blessings, that our punishment for sin and our spiritual riches were purchased with nothing short of the blood of God's only Son. Amazing grace. Not only do we get all these things that we deserve the opposite of, that the way that God goes about securing that for us is the slaughtering of His only Son. Grace cost us nothing. But grace cost Jesus everything. Jesus bled. Jesus died. And through this death of Christ, these gracious gifts are given to all who believe the Gospel. There's another song that we sing at Grace Community Church, and I love this line maybe more than any other that we sing. And it's a celebration that says this, Grace and peace, oh how can it be that the matchless King of all has paid the blood price for me? Think about how earth-shaking that is. The ones who deserve to be crushed by the King, the matchless King of all invades this planet in a real human body, and He pays the blood price for us. Amazing grace of God. And that grace is so amazing that it's going to take eternity for us to respond back to God and tell God how amazing His grace toward us in Jesus truly is. It will take eternity to plumb the depths of the riches of the gospel of the grace of God. And throughout endless ages, we're going to praise God for what He's done for us in Jesus Christ. Amazing grace. Earth-shaking, life-altering, astounding grace. This is the gospel of Jesus. Grace. Grace. God's favor given to those who deserve God's wrath through the work of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of grace. And without it, Christianity, it cannot exist. Christianity cannot exist 
apart from this message. And that means that this gospel of grace that we're going to talk about today, it has to be protected, okay? It has to be protected so that this message of grace, this message of salvation can be preached to all the nations and passed down to every generation. It cannot be perverted. If the message of grace is perverted, there is no gospel mission and there is no more church. And this is exactly where we're headed today. And our passage is going to show us that this message of the free grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ, it was attacked. It was attacked in the early church. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 15. And we're going to read a pretty long passage this morning. We're going to read verses 1 through verse 35. And just so I don't lose anybody with a length of this passage, I want to ask us all to stand, and we're going to reverently read the Word of God. We're going to celebrate God's Word as we read together. This is the Word of God to Grace Community Church. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, 
says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This is the word of God to Grace Community Church today. You may be seated. We're introduced almost immediately in this passage to those who challenge the grace of God, the true Christian gospel, the opponents of grace. And if we go to verse 5, we're told that these opponents are actually Pharisees. They're converted Pharisees that have believed the gospel of Jesus and they're inside the church, but they haven't broken away from the law of Moses. Their position is described two separate times. It's described in Antioch and in Jerusalem. And let's read it verbatim beginning in verse 1. This is what they're saying. This is how the gospel is being challenged. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved. So they're making circumcision a requirement for these newly converted Gentiles, and without this, their position is you cannot be saved. But really, this is only the beginning of this legalistic teaching, this false gospel, because if we... Fast forward to verse 5, we read these words. 
it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. They are bringing in salvation through law keeping and they're attempting to pervert the gospel of the free grace of God in Jesus Christ. And the stakes at this point in church history, they could not be any higher. So think about where we're at in the book of Acts and where we're at in redemptive history. That up until this point, by and large, until Acts chapter 13, the gospel has been a Jewish thing. Then beginning earlier, a little earlier in Acts chapter 10, it begins to make some headway among the nations, and then beginning in Acts 13, that first missionary journey, the gospel is exploding among the Gentiles. So what's been a Jewish thing for thousands of years is now exploding among the nations, and now you have this satanic counterattack where Satan rises up in opposition to the church. And I want us to notice his strategy is this. Not only does Satan attempt to kill Christ, that backfires. Not only does Satan attempt to kill Christians, and we see that that's backfired also in the book of Acts. Satan's strategy also includes perverting the gospel of Jesus, and if he's able to do this, he knows that he can destroy the church. What we're going to see in our passage is, is the sovereign work of Christ to protect this gospel from this satanic attack. So the stakes could not be higher. This is a young church, early in this movement of salvation to the nations, and we have this perversion that's entering into the gospel of the free grace of God. Anytime human works are added to the finished, perfect, sufficient work of Christ, it doesn't make it just a little bit wrong. It makes it an entirely false gospel. That's really important for us. Anything added to the work of Jesus doesn't just make it bad teaching, it makes it damnable heresy. Damnable heresy. That, that we cannot be saved unless we believe the gospel of the sufficient, free grace of Jesus Christ. And so this is what's at stake here. Romans 11 reminds us that any blending of grace and and works, it doesn't produce grace plus works, it perverts grace to the very core. Listen to this phrase in Romans 11, verse 6. Paul says this, If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And so he's telling, we can't have it both ways. You either have grace or you have works. Either Jesus accomplished everything, or we have to finish the work of Christ. Either the work of Christ is sufficient, or the work of Christ gets it started, and you've got to finish it yourself. They're two different Gospels, and they produce two different religions. Grace and works, they don't mix at all, like oil and water. And any time grace is added to works, a false Gospel is created in and there are always at least two things that happen. And I want us to learn to think about false gospels in these ways. False gospels dishonor God, and false gospels harm people. Okay? False gospels, challenges to the gospel of grace, dishonor Christ, and they harm people. You say, well, how do they dishonor Christ? 
in a very real sense, they assault that once for all bleeding unto death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The moment where Jesus drinks the cup of wrath from the Father. Where, where Jesus takes our punishment as our substitute on the cross. Gospels of works assault the sufficiency of the cross of Jesus Christ, and they dishonor Jesus. Can you imagine how offensive it would be to Jesus if you were to say, Jesus, that blood that you spilled at Calvary is just not enough. You should have did more, Jesus. we got to finish what you started, Jesus, because you're not strong enough to do the whole thing, Jesus. It's just adding to the work of Christ. It's dishonoring Christ. It's challenging the sufficiency of the atonement. Paul also spells this out in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. He says this, I do not nullify the grace of God. What would it look like if you did that? Nullify the grace of God. He goes on to say this, For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died, listen, for no purpose. If we could be righteous through our own law-keeping, the Word of God says that the death of Jesus was absolutely pointless. God let His Son be slaughtered, suffer, and die for absolutely no reason if righteousness is attainable through human performance, through law-keeping. False gospels assault the sufficiency of the work of Christ, but they also harm people. Later in Acts 15 and verse 24, when they send this letter back to these Gentile churches, they say this phrase, that these Pharisees were troubling you with words and unsettling your minds. One of the great dangers that we can have in regards to false gospels is that some of these things are so ridiculous that the mindset is, man, you got to be dumb to believe that. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And it's easy to dismiss the persuasiveness of false gospels. And I want to encourage us not to do that. They really do affect people. They really do land. They really do unsettled minds. They really do trouble human hearts. And I would submit to us that there's nothing that causes spiritual trauma like legalism. Like the gospel of salvation through human performance. It's traumatic. It sends people into a spiral of confusion. Think about anything that you know that can disturb a human conscience and the assurance of salvation, like taking the focus off of the perfect work of Jesus Christ and putting the focus on our puny, weak obedience to God. It sets us up for turmoil, to be cast about by every wave of doctrine. False gospels dishonor Christ and they harm people. And they, sh and they have to be resisted. And this is what we see happen in Acts 15. That when these Pharisees rise up and the gospel of free grace is challenged, the Lord raises up leaders to confront this false teaching. And we saw that um, in, in verse, um, verse 2. Paul and Barnabas immediately in Antioch, it says they had no small dissension and debate. 
And I know that's a funny way to say that, but what that means is it wasn't small at all. It was really big debate. Okay? They went after it. They challenged and called out those opponents as false teaching, bringing a false gospel. And so false gospel, they can't be tolerated. They must be challenged because the, 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 the church itself is at stake. If the gospel is undermined, there's no more church. And so Paul and Barnabas resist the false gospel in Antioch, and then we see an entire council is called to respond to this false teaching in Jerusalem. And once this council gets called and, and the debate starts up again, Luke focuses in on the role of two men at this meeting in Jerusalem. And we're going to see that there were two separate speeches of two separate apostles that brought tremendous clarity where this false gospel was bringing confusion. And we're going we're gonna to move through these. Peter first, Peter first, and then James. Peter first, and then James. Look at verse 7. In verse 7, Peter stands up, and his response to the challenge of the grace of God is he points back to what we have been studying in recent weeks that happened in Acts chapter 10. And what he does is he points to an objective act of God in human history. And I think there's something for us to learn there that when human beings begin to debate about things, they're swimming in a pool of subjectivity. Well, I think this. Well, I perceive this. And what he does is he gets out of the subjectivity and he points to an objective act of God in history. God did this and we got to deal with it. Okay? So he looks back to what God has done in Acts chapter 10, and he begins to recount uh, the, the story of Gentile conversion. That the Gentiles heard the gospel and they believed it. They heard that message of grace, the free grace of God in Jesus, and they believed it. And then look at verse 8. Peter tells us not only did they believe it, but God did something in that moment where God sealed it to make it evident to everybody. And the phrase that he uses in verse 8 is God bore witness. So when the Gentiles were converted, Cornelius and his house, Peter says God bore witness in that moment. And if you remember, we covered this, that, that something really unique happened when uh, the Gentiles, Cornelius and his house, received the gospel. If you go back and read the end of Acts chapter 10, you'll find that in the middle of Peter preaching the gospel to this group, and I mean in the middle, like before he gets to the end and says, repent and believe the gospel, before he even finishes and calls them to respond, the Holy Spirit falls and they start speaking in tongues. Imagine that happening on the mission field. You don't even get to the end of your gospel presentation and there's a visible, manifested sign that they just believed it. And their faith and their conversion was sealed in this dramatic way. And Peter's saying in that moment, God bore witness by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he gave to us. And so Peter points back, remember Ryan called that the Gentile Pentecost, Pentecost number two that the Spirit was given in that unique, 
visible, clear way that it would be clear to all, they just got saved. They just believed the gospel. They're in Christ. And this is Peter's argument. And then he makes a point, theological point, off of this objective act in history. And in verse 9 he says this, God made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. And this is the point, okay? So Peter points back to this powerful conversion, and the way he sums that up is God made no distinction. And he's telling a group of Jews, they got saved just like you got saved. No distinction. And then the important thing for us to notice is they got saved, they got converted, they received the Spirit, and the law of Moses is nowhere around. All these things that God has done, these dramatic spiritual blessings that God has bestowed, God has done that in these Gentiles apart from the law of Moses, apart from obedience to the law of Moses. Understand his point. Because in verse 10, Peter goes, therefore, and then he gives a warning. If God did that, and if this is what that really means, then listen to what he says in verse 10. He warns the audience that any attempt to place the Gentiles under the law of Moses is equivalent with putting God to the test. And he's saying, if you do this, you're provoking God. I want us to understand that. In what way? In what way is that putting God to the test? God has revealed His will. God's will is to save Gentiles freely through grace, not through obedience to the law of Moses. And any attempt to put Gentiles under the yoke of Moses is going to be viewed as hindering God's purpose. Think about that. Stretching God's patience, putting God to the test, and invoking God's judgment. Standing in opposition to God. This is a serious warning that Peter gives in verse 10. And then James stands up. We see this in verse 14. Now James is the earthly half-brother of Jesus. And let me just mention this. Um, this, is, this is an encouraging an encouraging confirmation about the resurrection of Jesus Christ is how did James get here? Jesus' brother. How did he get here? Because, you know, we're reading the Gospels and the Gospels are really clear about one fact about Jesus' brothers. They did not believe Jesus. And this progresses to such a degree in the Gospels that Jesus' brothers actually go try to pull him away from his ministry because they think he's gone crazy. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah and his brothers do not believe him. They do not receive his message. And then all of a sudden, a couple of decades later, we have one of his brothers is a pillar and a leader in the early church. How do you account for that? What makes the switch? Or to ask it a different way, what would have to happen for you to worship your brother? What would you have to be made aware of to bow and begin to pay homage and give your entire life to serving your brother? This is exactly what we have 
in the, in the Apostle James, the earthly half-brother of Jesus. And when Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is, is talking about the post-resurrection appearances to Christ, that Jesus appeared to this group, Jesus appeared to this group, Jesus appeared to this group, one of the people that is specifically mentioned is James. And so that's the switch. What would it take for you to worship your brother? Well, what it took for James is seeing Jesus dead and then seeing Jesus raised from the dead in the same body. And once that happened, he spent his entire life serving the Lord Jesus. And he's a, serv- he's a leader in the Jerusalem church. So he stands up. Jesus is earthly half-brother, and he responds, and he builds off of Peter's argument. And what Peter pointed to is, you could call it new revelation, something new that God had done in Acts 10. God gave a vision. God did something new in including the Gentiles. So Peter points to new revelation to account for the inclusion of the Gentiles. And James does the opposite. He builds off this, and James points to old revelation. Peter, new revelation. James, old revelation. And in verse 15, he says this. The words of the prophets agree with what he just said. The words of the prophets agree. God has visited the Gentiles, and then what does he do? He quotes a verse from the Old Testament. Authoritative words from God. Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. It's the, the specific text that James quotes. And, and this is in regards to Gentiles being saved. And he says, Amos told us about this. I want us to notice just two things of this prophecy of Amos. In Acts chapter, uh, Amos chapter 9. Two things, two pieces. The prophecy was this. For hundreds of years this sat dormant. Okay? The prophecy was that the fallen tent of David will be rebuilt. I will rebuild it, says the Lord. He will rebuild the tent of David. And then the second piece of this prophecy is when that happens, and upon this rebuilding, Amos prophesied that a remnant of Gentiles would seek the Lord. Would seek the Lord. And so James quotes that text, and he speaks about that prophecy in such a way that he's, he's showing us that that prophecy is being fulfilled as the book of Acts is being written. And you say, in what way has the tent of David been restored? If we're not careful, we can be looking for literal buildings popping up in the Middle East. That's not what he's talking about. That's not the prophecy. The tent of David is restored, and this shows up over and over again in the book of Acts, when Jesus Christ, the Son of David, is raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God, and then sits down on the throne of heaven. The enthronement of Jesus at the right hand of God is the fulfillment of God's promises to David. And so catch this. Catch catch the way that James is thinking and using the Old Testament. Okay? That the tent of David is rebuilt through the death, resurrection, and enthronement of Jesus Christ. Is that not true? Is that not true right now? 
that Jesus, he's not just sitting in a chair, right? He's sitting on a throne. He's a real king, and he's really ruling right now. This is the heavenly reign of the Christ, reigning over all that he has made. This is the restored Davidic kingdom, the kingdom that is not of this world. So Jesus is the true David, right? The true and better David, that promised offspring of David. And how do we know that that's right? How do we know that Jesus is ruling at the right hand of God? How do we know that the tent of David is being restored? And one of the ways that that Acts does this over and over again is the way that Jesus manifests his kingly reign is through the nations getting saved. He, He stretches out his royal scepter and hearts bow down to King Jesus. And that's exactly what he's saying about this prophecy. Jesus has been enthroned and the Gentiles in mass numbers are seeking the Lord. This is exactly what was prophesied. It's exactly what Amos had said. So, old revelation confirms Gentile salvation. New revelation confirms Gentile salvation. And then upon the recommendation of James... The council reaches this conclusion in verse 19. In light of all this, they say, we should not trouble the Gentiles who turn to God. All that's in the context. They turn to God without the law of Moses. There's no way that we should trouble them by yoking them to the law of Moses. Now, to formalize this decision, this council writes a letter, and then they appoint godly leaders to deliver that letter to all the Gentile churches. And that letter is summarized in verse 28 and 29. It says this, It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. All right, I want us to think about this because, you know, honestly, this has been, you know, a confusing part of the book of Acts for me for a long time. And so, if if you're not careful, it sounds like this. You're free, you're free, you're free. Oh, you're bound In in these four ways. You're free, you're free, you're free. Oh, but you got to do this, okay? And so there's a lot here that, that, that we need to understand um, what's going on. And some of this can be helped by the context of the ways that Jews and Gentiles are relating to each other in this early church, in the first century church. And one of the flashpoints of controversy is idolatry, Okay? This is one of the things that is most repulsive to Jewish Christians, and this is one of the things that the Gentile Christians are really susceptible to because they're coming from two different backgrounds, two different worldviews. Jewish Christians have, have, have grown up their entire life with the doctrine of the one true God, that He is the one true God and there is none like Him. Gentile Christians have grown up with the exact opposite worldview, that there's all these different gods and you spread around your allegiance, and then they get saved, and they're brought into the same body, and one of the flashpoints is how they're dealing with their engagement 
of idolatry in the Gentile world. So one of the things that's helpful is to understand that these four things actually go together. Okay? They're four different descriptions of various levels of participation in pagan idolatry. Okay? Even to the point of participating in idolaters' feasts in pagan temples. And so, uh, so think about this. Food sacrificed to idols, food with blood, food that was strangled, all that refers to these pagan ceremonies uh, of, of things that they did and in, in, in the ways that they worshipped their false gods and the letter saying, don't do that. Don't participate in that stuff. Okay? And then we come to that reference to sexual immorality, and that's kind of strange. And I think the reason it's kind of strange is like, of course they should abstain from that. Like, of course, of course, anyone who repents of sin and bows the knee to Jesus Christ, of course they should abstain from sexual immorality. And it seems even so obvious that it wouldn't even be worth you know, reminding them of. Of course we don't mean that you're free to commit sexual immorality by declaring that you're free from the law of Moses. And again, I think this temple feast and idolatry helps us to understand. One of the things that we learn about idolatry in the Old Testament and the New is that many different pagan gods in their temples, they were worshipped with wicked sex acts. And in the Old Testament, the people of God are even warned about participating in what is called cult prostitutes. We have that same warning given in the New Testament. And, and, and the idea here is the same thing, that all these wicked things happen when the pagans worship their God and the Gentile Christians are being warned. You don't have anything to do with that. Your level of participation with that should be abstaining. Okay? And so you think about how necessary that is. Because the human heart, it, it, the recall to the message of free grace is what? I can live however I want. And so this letter does these two things beautifully. One, it's an announcement of freedom to these Gentiles. You don't have to be Jewish. You don't have to submit yourself to the law of Moses. You don't have to bow down to the yoke of Moses. And then at the same time, it carefully qualifies, but you can't be an idol worshiper either. You don't have to be Jewish, but you can't stay a pagan idol worshiper either. You have to repent and come out of the worship of false gods. You don't have to be Jewish, but you cannot be an idolater. Paul deals with the same thing, much more detail in his letter to 1 Corinthians. In fact, that letter is broken up in different categories. And there's an entire category in that letter beginning in verse in chapter 8, verse 1, that is matters concerning idolatry. Matters concerning idolatry. I want to ask you just really quickly to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I think this will help you. He says it in a much more clear way here. Beginning in verse 18, listen to what he says. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? 
that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? And then jump down to verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. And so what we see clearly is that the New Testament calls Gentile converts to separate from the way that pagans worship their God. There's to be an abstaining. Do not partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And so both of these ideas are being communicated. You don't have to be Jewish, but you can't worship pagan gods anymore. You have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you have to turn away from idols. And then in verse 31 of Acts 15, they deliver this letter, this letter of freedom, this letter of grace. And both of those things in view don't have to be Jewish, but you're not use this as a license to worship false gods. And then notice in verse 31 that when they deliver this letter, what's the effect? What's the response? Look at verse 31. They rejoiced because of its encouragement. They rejoiced because of its encouragement. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind us, that's what the grace of God does. The message of human performance brings a burden. The message of the perfect work of Jesus Christ brings encouragement and joy. They rejoiced. They were set free from this false gospel and these false ideas about Jesus Christ and the Christian life. This letter proclaimed that the perfect work of Jesus was sufficient. They did not need to submit to the, to the law of Moses. And so we have dramatic contrast here. Gospel of works and the false teaching that these Pharisees brought in, it troubled people and it brought disunity to the church. Troubled souls. And then the gospel of the free grace of God comes in, puts down this false gospel, and the exact opposite happens. Disciples that were troubled begin to rejoice, and a church that was experiencing division experiences tremendous unity. True gospel versus the false gospel. And I was thinking about this. You think about how good that good news is to people that have been beaten down by legalism. To people that the spotlight of their mind has been placed on their own performance, maybe for weeks, maybe for months, maybe for years, and all of a sudden, the message of Jesus, the one who said, it is finished. It comes in and it brings peace. Liberates them from burden. 
And they receive it like good news. Like a tired man on a journey just drinks down a refreshing glass of water. Good news of the gospel. And they began to rejoice. And so what we see big picture here is that this council protected the message of grace. The message of grace was challenged. Satan tried to pervert it by perverting it. Stop the church from expanding, but Jesus raised up his church to confront it. And they protected the gospel. And then we come in. This gospel was protected, this gospel of grace, and it's been passed down. Generation after generation after generation, God has ensured its purity. That we today can hear of a free pardon offered to sinners through the work of Jesus. Today we can hear grace. So the question for us is really simple. This message of grace was protected. It's been passed down to us. And the question is, will you believe this? Or will you reject it? Will you believe the grace of God? Or will you reject it? I'll remind us, verse 11, Peter says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And you need to settle this once for all in your life. Did Jesus do everything on the cross, or did He not? When Jesus died on the cross, was it a perfectly sufficient sacrifice for sin, or was it not? you got to settle that. Deep in your heart, and you got to settle it to such a degree that you never open that question back up again for the rest of your life. Is the death of Christ sufficient? Is the grace of God enough to cover all of our sins, or is it not? Do you believe it, or do you reject it? There's no middle ground. You can't say, well, I don't know about that. That's rejecting it. God has sent His Son. Jesus has taken on a real human body, provided perfect obedience to the law of God, same law that we've broken thousands of times in our life. He died as a substitute, taking the wrath that we deserve, and you got to decide, do I believe that or do I not? Indifference to the Gospel, I'm not sure what I think about that, is rejection of the Gospel. And think about how gracious God has been to give us this message of grace. The ones who deserve God's wrath can receive God's favor through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Is that bloody, bloody, bloody cross and that dead body of Christ in that tomb, is that enough or is it not? Is it enough or is it not? And answering that question distinguishes between two different religions. True and false Christianity, heaven and hell, forgiveness of sin, or eternal wrath from God. And brothers and sisters, I want to encourage us that if we believe that gospel, then it ought to have some marks on the way that we live our life. That message of grace ought to mark us. And one of the ways it ought to mark us is with a life of freedom in Christ Jesus. And I wonder how important that is for you when you begin to think about the weighty commands of God, the most important things, the weighty things. I wonder how high on that list 
Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 is for you. Listen to it. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Is that on the front of your mind day by day and week by week that Christ has set me free and I will live in this freedom? I will not submit to slavery. I will not allow a false gospel of works and human performance to creep into my heart. I will stand firm and I will reject that yoke of slavery. We have to remind ourselves day by day Every day that we wake up, we live by grace. And it's all of Jesus, and it's none of us. And the reason why that's really important for a group of people like us, by and large, who have bowed the knee to Jesus and believed this glorious gospel, is one of the things that's true about every one of us is we have this sinful nature in us, and by nature we have these hearts that come into this world And the default setting of the sinful human heart is works righteousness. Every single human being is pre-programmed. You can thank your great-great-grandfather Adam for this one. Every human being born into this world pre-programmed relating to God on the basis of works. And it's only the gospel of Jesus that can break that false teaching in half. It's only the gospel of the free grace of God in Jesus Christ that can bury that false thinking in the dirt. The message of freedom, freedom in Jesus Christ. We've got to learn how to confront the legalist within us. You need to learn how to do that, how to preach the gospel to yourself, how to remind yourself of the mighty works of Jesus Christ, the finished work of Christ. And, and, we, and we get to wake up and walk in this beautiful reality in Christ, every believer. Beautiful reality that Jesus has taken care of our past. The work of Christ has taken care of our future. And that has allowed us to live in a certain way in the present. And this is glorious grace. This is amazing grace from God. Your past taken care of. All those sins that you have committed, You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to atone for your sin. The blood of Christ is sufficient. The blood of Jesus washes away all sin. You don't have to deal with your past. Jesus takes care of that. Free grace of God. Free mercy from heaven. What about your future? you got all these things that you know you want to do. All these things that need to be done. All these duties that must be performed. And the false way of thinking is... I gotta, I gotta do this stuff. I gotta perform. And the emphasis on me, me, me. But Jesus has already done a work. You don't have to secure the favor of God with your acts of obedience to God. That is the exact opposite of the gospel. Your future, as it relates to obeying God, it doesn't include securing God's satisfaction. He's already satisfied in Christ. We obey the holy, holy, holy one as a As a son obeys a father, not as a criminal before a judge. That's taken care of. No more condemnation in Christ. Past taken care of, future taken care of. And what does that mean? 
What implications does that, have, does that have in the present, right now? And Galatians tells us freedom. It means freedom. It means that we wake up every day having been set free from the burden of sin, from the burden of the law, from the burden of human performance. We're free in Christ, and the commandment is to stand in it. Stay firm right there. Magnify the grace of God. Glorious grace from Jesus Christ. Our sins are worse than we ever imagined, but the gospel of the grace of God is better than we ever dreamed. When the Savior bled, did He not die? And was it not for sinners such as I? Glorious grace, the Lamb has been slain. This shall be my eternal refrain. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank You that every sermon that You've ever used, Lord, has been given by a weak man. And every church that You've ever stirred up, Lord, was a weak church. God, we ask You, Lord, to use the preaching of Your Word and we ask by the power of Your Spirit that You would make the work of Jesus glorious to us. God, we pray today that You would cast out coldness for Christ. God, we pray that any of those yokes that have landed on our hearts, those yokes of slavery, Lord Jesus, break them down by Your powerful Word, by Your finished work. Lord, we love You. And we tell You, Lord, that Your grace is amazing to us unsearchable riches you have given us. Praise to your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.